Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord community Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game, stories, and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. And I'm Kikita Kaori. And this week what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at Ghosts of Tsushima, more specifically the visual style and how to incorporate visual style and landscape and scenery into your role-playing games. We're also going to be looking at strife and unmaskings and seeing how they work in Legend of the Five Rings 5th edition as that is one of the big new mechanics that has come with 5th edition. So we're going to have a look at that. We do have a little bit of news. The Crab novella, Trail of Shadows, is out as of the 21st. I finished it late last night. We hope to get a review coming up in a future episode shortly, and we'll see if we can get an interview with the author. D.G. Latterroot has been on this podcast before, so we might be able to snag him. We also have an interview coming up with Sam Stewart of Edge Studios in a future episode. And Celestial Realms, there are people who have it in their hot little hands right now. We're going to start with looking at uh, Ghost of Tsushima, which unfortunately I have not had a chance to play, although I have seen some YouTube videos, and it looks extremely pretty. Now, you've been playing it a lot, I have come to understand. Yes, I am terrible at video games, but my husband has been playing it and letting me watch. I think that L5R players would see a lot of themes in the game that they've been playing with L5R for many years. But what really impacted me was how beautiful it was. It just has a great visual style. It's got sheer cliffs, a cliffside or mountaintop shrines with their little twisted evergreens clinging to the rocks over the stormy sea and you know, fields of pompous grass or lots of flowers uh, like spider lilies or nemophilia, just all kinds of things. And these are from Japan. Like you can go and see a field full of nemophilia, which are little sky blue flowers, and they're just gorgeous in Japan. But it's not settings that we often describe in the uh, role play game. There's lots of different kinds of homes. They have the traditional ones that we always see. We see oceanside ones in the game that are raised up on stilts for the high tide, which is, of course was very common for fishing villages. We've got those round houses with the huge thatch roof that reaches almost to the ground. I've been learning about Japanese and Chinese traditional cooking and food preparation. And there's platters of woven bamboo with everything drying. Beans, silkworm cocoons, tea leaves, fish, hanging racks of drying fish and seaweed. And that, of course, is like the major way of food preparation. Lots of light to heavy forest and bamboo groves and waterfalls. So if you are playing it or looking at videos of it, take some time to look at those visuals because they are great and different. They are traditional, but they're different from what is often just presented in your standard samurai movie. <laughs> I don't know how many people spend as much time watching samurai movies as I do. I think a lot of people aren't even aware of the visual elements that you get in a lot of classic samurai movies. They know a couple of Kurosawa movies, but there's a whole lot more to the genre than that. There are a lot of interesting visual elements that people could take and 
use in their games. But I think that's something that some people find difficult as a GM, for example, to really bring to to light and make it feel like you're in an interesting environment and really make it vivid. Do you have any thoughts on that? It is a definite challenge. There's, there are two kinds of elements to the challenge of trying to put your PCs someplace not your living room <laughs> in their imaginations. One is how to initially describe the setting, how to take the time. You usually only have you know, a few moments to do so. You're not writing a book where you can just expound for half an hour on the loveliness of the scene. So how do you do that? How do you describe it in the first place? And then the other side of it is how do you make it stick? Because you can sit and describe the most potent scenery ever. And if in the rush of action that happens afterwards the scenery isn't relevant to the players, it just gets forgotten. So what you want is the players to remember that scenery and tie it to the event that they role-played through as well. One of the best ways to get people to remember things is to have it have an actual game impact in some way. I think making it have some kind of actual impact on, on the character and what they're doing is important. But how do you bring it out so they know what's there and then can think about what might happen? So it's, it's both of those. The first challenge being how to describe them. Often you have to do that in just a couple of strokes. You don't have time to really get the poetry. And try and describe this in a few clear strokes. You need to find the key elements in that scene that are different or memorable from their real life experience. We all know what a floor looks like but there's something about that you want to describe that's different than what they've known in their normal life. Time to go back to your visual element, like using ghost or other things to help inform you and give something that's different from their real life experience and let their imaginations fill in the rest. Also, if you are giving a longer description, then I suggest pick three senses that you're going to activate during this scene. And then bring this scene in sense by sense, but bring in sight last. So let's say you decide your three senses are going to be sound, smell, and sight, which is a very common set of three. Introduce the sound first, for example. Describe that. Let the players respond to that, interact with the sound then introduce the smell, let the players interact with a response, and then introduce sight always last. That way they have time to absorb the other senses and realize that they're actually there. We are always focused on our sight because usually that's got the most information for us to respond to. And we'll forget that you also said it smelled like this or sounded like. Yeah, and... It depends on what are your characters doing at that moment. If they're just passing through, then I suspect that's going to be one of those situations where, oh, that's pretty, and then they just move on. But if the environment actually becomes important to them, like it tells you something about the area that you're in, it tells you something about the person you're meeting, if it affects the fight you're currently in the middle of, I think those are things that really... Right. 
make an environment making stick it memorable is more mind. important than describing it beautifully because that's what stays. There's this philosophy in L5R and some mechanics, which we'll talk about later, that actually cling to this philosophy. That is, never have a role that doesn't count for something, like doesn't change the course of the story. In order to make an environment stick, you want to have roles that interact with an element of the environment, or if not roles, at least reasons to interact with the environment, even if it's not going to change the story very much. People remember things they rolled for. So let's say I want to make an impression of a truly horrific scene upon my players. They've come into a burned down village. I've described the sound of the alarm bells or the sound of the fire. And I've described the smell of the smoke in the air. And I've described now this burning village. That's made an impression on them. But now I want it to stick. I don't really want my players to get burned. I want to move them through the village to chase the bandits that burned it down or whatever it is. But I do want this burnt village to make a big impression on them for later. In order for this, the poignancy of this village to stick in their memory, I do want them to have to make a role or something that will cause them to interact with this environment, even if it's not something that's going to radically change their directional course. I would say that counter to the L5R, only make it roll when it count. Remembering the environment is something that counts and is worth rolling for, even if uh, it's not going to change the course of the story. So you can make it have a low TN, TN1, just for the sake of making sure this is memorable to them. Here's some example roles to interact with the environment. You could have them find something hidden or notice something moving in a field of pompous grass or flowers or something like that. You can have a role to uh, stop gagging or retching a terrible smell or a scene. If you just have them in a beautiful spot, you can have them have the opportunity to compose a spontaneous haiku there that they can use later. You can have them give reverence to the kami of a particularly wonderful tree or stone. In Japan, you will often see great trees with prayer strips tied around them. A holy tree is a big kami in it because it's ancient. So you can have them show their reverence for that particular tree, and that also puts the tree in their memory. They could notice a little offering left at a special location and use their role to determine who left it. Or they could resist some sort of environmental harm, whether it's the cold or the heat or glare or, you know, clinging to the edge of a cliff and falling or whatever it is. I was also thinking that if you want to take a more kind of gamist point of view, you're off, often setting things up. So the characters have a set of clues they need to follow or there's someone they need to track that kind of thing, you can start to tie those into the environment. So you've got the, the burnt out village and we must find the bandits who did this. You tie the clues about where the bandits went into the scenery and the environment and the things you want 
their mind's eye camera to focus on, concentrate on this burned out house and the drying racks you were talking about. He was the meal they were planning to have before the bandits attacked. That, that's been kicked aside and you can follow the footsteps of the bandits who just kicked this aside and moved on. So you're then tying in the environmental to something that the characters are presumably going to want to know, which is where the bandits went. So you can start to tie things in that way as a way of combining both these things. A, a Shigenja who is properly reverent to a holy tree might get a plus one to something or effectively have a channeling type thing that they can use for later. Haiku at particular spots can take away strife. Some people would just happily listen to descriptions of the environment and will enjoy imagining their character there. Some people are going to be more tied to what are the mechanics, and that's perfectly fine. I have to say, I was just kind of thinking specifically about Ghost of Tsushima. It has a photo mode. Even if you aren't particularly good at playing computer games, that might be a way of generating interesting images for you to show to your players, especially if you're playing online these days. Mm -hmm. If you have been playing Ghost of Tsushima and you want to kind of shoehorn that particular storyline into your game. You are a samurai on an island. It's the first landing place of the Mongol invasion. All the samurai on the island are defeated and you survive. So it's up to you to stop the invasion by yourself, essentially. Because of Japan. it's a video game and that's how it works. Yes, pretty much. There are no real clan lands in Rokugan except on the Mantis Islands, that are completely isolated from the rest of the Empire in order to create this island situation. It depends how tied you are to it being an island specifically. In 4th edition, they brought out the Naishore Province supplement, which was intended to be an isolated province. In this case, it was surrounded by mountains rather than surrounded by ocean. It was designed to be a little bit of ways out from the Empire, but still be lands of the Empire. If you happen to have Nyshore Province, you could possibly put your invasion there. There's a couple of solutions to this. You could have it in the Amantis Islands itself. The story as given, he's not very Amantis at all. The other place that you could put it, and this one actually might work pretty well because it's big enough, is to put it on the Asahina Plains, which is the peninsula and the very far south of Rokugan. It's, it's got this geographic beauty, but it's also is isolated from the rest of Cranelands. That does the same effect of making it a geographically isolated place. If the crab are busy at the wall, they're distracted, and it's a long way from the center of power for the crane as well. Plus, the story works very well for Daidoji because there's so much focus on honor and to do what we must, like Gaijin things, because you're the only guy fighting off an invasion, and Gaijin Pepper. With the Ghost of Tsushima, which has a lot of Edo period look to it. It is set during a, a time that is approximately uh, 400 years previously. The Mongol invasion happened in the 1270s and 1280s, but at a period is 1600 onwards. I'm thinking there is a point where there is an invasion in Rokugan's history 
which is the Battle of the White Stag. If you wanted to run a game like that, you've got the historical period where some weird foreigners are coming from over the sea. It would just be very anachronistic to have Rokugani wandering about in an event that's supposed to take place 800 years ago. But that makes it very appropriate for Kusachima, in my opinion. Traditionally, in L5R, we picture the Ushikai as the Mongols and the unicorn. But the problem with using Ujikai as substitute Mongols is that they're coming from the wrong direction and they have this long history with the unicorn. Also, there's less gaiju pepper, but uh, that complication with the unicorn and how a significant part of them are Ujikai, it's not so good for the whole weirdness thing. Now, if you do it with the Battle of the White Stag, there are no unicorn there, but maybe you want unicorn in your story. Even if you do... It, with the Battle of the White Stag, though, using a Western-style invasion force of some sort rather than Mongols probably works better because you can have your unicorn characters there. It can have a greater element of surprise or cultural weirdness to Rokugani, even if they are familiar with the unicorn. Now, if you want the real feel of the Mongols in this game... I suggest you make up a faction that hasn't existed ever in the game, but would work well. And that is the idea of gun Vikings. We talked about this in Discord, is that you could make a version of Vikings with bombs and fire lances, shoulder cannon kind of things. Create a culture, so your players aren't familiar, that has Vikings in it, but advanced the Viking tech by however many centuries in order to have that conquest mentality that the Vikings are traditionally associated with. Good strategy, which the Mongols in the game are definitely intelligent opponent. And then your players won't know what's coming. <laughs> so, so there you go. If you're playing the Ghost of Tsuchima, then you've got lots of interesting places to get scenery from i have also put together a screenshot album in imager for various like samurai dramas and interesting images that i've come across that's another resource that i hope people would find we'll put a link to that in the show notes and i hope your games become much more visually interesting so our next topic we wanted to talk about today was strife so what's strife <laughs> strife is one of the very distinctive mechanisms of Legend of the Five Rings that it certainly did not have in previous editions. It's controversial. People have complained that they don't want to be told how to roleplay the character, when to roleplay their character. And they feel that this can be something that's imposed upon them. But it is such an integral part of the system. It is bound up in the way you roll dice that we're going to have to find a way of making it work for every game. I'm an old-school gamer myself, so I, I do get some of the, the criticisms. But the thing that kind of swayed me over was realizing that the point of strife in the game is to make the keep part of roll and keep meaningful. In previous editions of the game, you rolled a big handful of d10s. You weren't really choosing which dice to keep or not. You just kept the biggest numbers. 
as simple as that. There was one specific point where you wouldn't, which is when you were doing a first blood duel and you would keep lower results on the damage so you don't just kill your opponent. The point with Strife is that Strife always comes with a success result or an opportunity result, which means you have a choice. Do you want to keep that die and keep that Strife, or do you want to go without that opportunity? Do you want to go without that success? So in other words, how much does the result of this die roll mean to my character? How much does it mean to me? Am I willing to push myself? Am I willing to take something negative in order to succeed? I think that opens up an awful lot of interesting design space and a lot of interesting tactics and ways of thinking about it and ways of interacting with the dice that I really think makes the game more interesting, which is why I like Strife. I wanted to talk a little bit about where Strife came from originally for L5R. The mechanic for Strife is not the first time that's ever been done. It's actually been in a number of role-playing games in the in the past in different fashions. The very first version that I've ever heard of was the humanity score in Vampire the Masquerade. If you lost humanity or spent humanity to do various vampire power things, and if you lost all of it, then the GM took your character, did something awful, and they gave you your character back, and now your humanity score was all cleared off. You ended up with two kinds of players who responded to this humanity system. You had the stereotype gamer who would never want to lose their humanity. They'd hoard it. They never want the GM to take their character. They would not use their powerful skills that spent humanity. Then there were the kind of players who didn't care about that aspect of the role-playing. So they would spend humanity freely. The GM would do something without them because they wouldn't actually role-play it out. Would take their sheet for a moment, say, okay, you did something, give it back, and it wouldn't be a big deal for them at all. And then they would get to use all of their funky powers. So that kind of dynamic also hits strife. What do you want to use strife for? How do you balance those two kinds of players? And how do you talk to each of those groups? That leads us to some misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there, there are people who spend opportunities so that they can ignore strife results, which ultimately means that they don't interact with either of those two systems, which is a big shame. Or they try and minimize everything, which also isn't as much fun. The, the main misconception is that strife is always negative. It's always bad for you. Unmaskings are always negative and you should totally avoid them. It's the worst thing that can happen to your character. You don't get anything good out of it. And I can see why people think that. Although they say in the rule book, unmaskings can be positive in certain ways. I don't think that's really laid out, which I think is a shame. You are just going to lose some honor. Or you're going to lose some glory. And that's it. But you do have the classic example in Seven Samurai, where Kikuchio, who is played by Toshiro Mifune, there's this big moment where everyone's in the village and they're trying to prepare everybody for the bandit attack. And, oh no, where are we going to get some weapons? And Kikuchio turns up with a whole bunch of weapons 
but they have been taken from samurai who have died in battle. So all the other samurai are shut down. They have not accepted Kikuchiya at all. They realize that he's not one of them, and they've been treating him very differently. But in the middle of this, he suddenly starts going on this absolute rant. He starts off about how farmers are all cowards and thieves, and but then he immediately turns that on the samurai themselves. Because who made these farmers live this way? It's the samurai. Because the samurai hold themselves above them. It's one of the classic kind of moments in the movie. And it is absolutely an unmasking. It's also the thing that finally makes him accepted into that group of samurai, where they really hadn't before. So, you know, game terms, that's him losing some glory. Maybe that's reveal your weakness, which in this case, he's an upjump peasant. But the positive thing is, this is what it took to get through that barrier between him and them. And I think that's a good model to use. I think that's a way you can start thinking about unmasking and strife and how you can make that in your game and make that part of your character without just seeing it as a bad thing that you have to put up with and that you don't want to play with. So it's certainly something to take to the players that are the part of your group that do not want to engage with strife, that are trying to role-play the cool of the samurai. And of course, the best use of unmasking is it gets rid of compromise condition. It, you, you get to keep all those strife dice. There are techniques that take advantage of the compromise condition. So there are a lot of mechanical benefits. Now, there is a flip side. There are players who recognize this and are totally cool with unmasking wherever and never care about keeping their cool as a samurai or anything like that. Those are like vampire players <laughs> who are just happy to ditch their humanity and spend it on techniques all the time. It means that you're also missing some of the role-playing stuff. So you don't want to swing it too much in their favor. The biggest problems are when you have a mixed group because unmaskings don't cost anything, and you can do it all the time. When that side of the equation happens, then all of the shuji, all of the techniques, all of the strategies that you might have with your courtiers in a bushi group or other situations where your opponents are trying to put strife onto you, and there's a lot of techniques that do this, or the whole mechanic itself, doesn't actually mean anything. It's not that struggle between keeping your face and letting it slip. There's no point to keeping your face. So in those cases, that's when you really want to have unmasking have consequences and not just to honor or glory, but to, uh, to other things too. Because if you're the kind of player who doesn't care about unmasking, it's probably likely you don't care that much about honor and glory either, because that's a role-playing thing, and you're a mechanics kind of a, a person, which is, is a legit way to play. So in that case, I want them to care about being samurai. How do I make them care? The GM should not be afraid to say, okay, because you did this thing, 
your opponent saw your weakness. Or you can say, you are so busy doing that masking, that takes up your action for the round. It just depends on what you're doing. But you need to kind of balance it between the role players who never want to unmask. You want to give benefits to their unmasking when they do it and make them know it's safe. And the ones who take too much advantage of unmasking, you want to make strife interesting. So while you might not want to say what's giving you strife on every role, maybe if they take over three strife on a role and if it's a key role, go back and ask your PC what's causing you to be bothered so much. And, and if they're making a role and they're accepting three strife, clearly this means something. Your character's clearly pushing themselves. So what is the strife, positive or negative? Because it could be a happy, joyous emotion just as much. But it might be not something you want in the middle of the scene. So at the end, if something happens, you could say, okay, over this whole scene, you took a lot of strife. What was causing you strife within the whole scene? And then that leads into the next scene. Yeah. The other thing to, you can also look at your unmaskings. I think one of the misconceptions is that when you do your 20 questions and it says, how do you normally you know, react to stress? Some people feel that's them locked in. That's your only unmasking. No, there's loads of options. That's merely a way of getting you to think in terms of how your character often behaves. But in a particular situation, you may think that something very different is, in fact, what your character's going to do. You should be able to pretty much anytime you want when the player says, I want this thing to happen now because this is an emotionally tense scene and doesn't make sense for me to be steady. I want to voluntarily take three strife to get myself to where I can unmask here. You can do this. Uh, and if that's dramatically appropriate and you're voluntarily taking three strife, I should give you a void point. That's a good use for it. About as much as we can deal with on Strife. I've had some thoughts about how to reskin it as something slightly different, but I haven't got that finished yet, so I don't really want to bring it out until I've got something that really works. If you have other questions, things you feel that we haven't covered, questions, hints and tips, please do get in touch. As always, let's call out our sister podcast. A little bit of a hiatus on the L5R LCG podcast. Our Two actual play podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife. All our podcasts are funded by the Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs as well as our website, where you can store and see longer-term information, summaries of our podcasts, all kinds of good role-playing game tools, and more. You can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com, twitter.com slash courtgamespod, and we are on Patreon at patreon.com court games but that's it for this week this is Kikita Kaori may the fortunes favor you and I've been Kova and until we meet again keep your jade handy <laughs> <laughs>